Open up your Bibles today to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Our service has been structured around the Word of God. Let's continue that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need you once again. Fill us with your spirit that we may be able to open up the words of this book and to get what you want us to have from it. Thank you again for doctrine, for truth, for what you're doing in Paul's life. And Lord, help us to see that. Help us to glory in it. And help us to show what we need in our lives to confidently know today. We love you. Do your work in your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we saw that the Apostle Paul gave a defense in front of the Jewish council, which consisted of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul has been arrested. He's been falsely accused by the Jewish people. And the Roman commander had set this meeting up because he wanted to know exactly what they had against Paul. He wants to know because he has recently found out that Paul is a Roman citizen and isn't allowed, and he isn't allowed to do anything to a Roman citizen without due process, and he's already bound Paul, almost tortured him, and now he's trying to get to the bottom of it by finding out what the Jews have against him. Paul answers that his conscience is clear before God, that he's done nothing wrong. It's at this point where the high priest orders Paul to be punched in the mouth. Paul then calls the high priest in a moment of anger a hypocrite. But then Paul then repents of his sin, for he broke God's law for speaking against the leader of the people, as God had commanded. Last week we saw the difference between how a believer repents versus how a hypocrite or someone who's not a Christian Repentance, false repentance, and true repentance. Paul then takes the opportunity to stir up the Pharisees against the Sadducees. And so they get into a fight. They start screaming and shouting. And all of a sudden, for a few moments, they forget about Paul because they're mad at one another and how to handle the situation. It is then at that time that the Roman commander, fearing for Paul's life, takes him out of the room and takes them back to the barracks. Let's let's begin in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This verse really changes the rest of the book of Acts. Because the rest of the book of Acts, Paul is imprisoned in some fashion. And probably we are wondering at any moment, Paul's going to get it. He's going to die. He's going to be executed. But here the Lord Jesus encourages Paul, telling him to be courageous, to take courage. They will not succeed And Jesus says, you will go all the way to Rome. And what you have told these people here, you will tell them there. It's amazing. Paul will not die before going to Rome. And this should give Paul much encouragement. 
not wondering if he's going to wake up the next day because the Lord Jesus has promised him. Trust me, Paul, there's no need to fear. You may say, I wish Jesus would do that for me. I wish Jesus would just show up in my bedroom and start talking to me. Then I'd feel a whole lot better, right? Well, friends, he's given us something way better than that. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. We are not devoid of encouragement as Christians. The Bible says that when a person becomes born again and is converted and trusts in the Lord Jesus, he becomes indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He's our comforter, our advocate. He's our friend. He lives inside of us. And according to what Jesus says to his disciples, it is to our advantage that he is not here physically with us. Because that then if that was true, we wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ. He is God himself. And this is why the Lord Jesus can say to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have never been a moment apart from God. You've never been a moment. You may have felt isolated. You may have felt apart from God and depressed and discouraged. And... But if you're a Christian, you've never been apart from an omnipresent God. Before you were saved, you live in his creation and he fills it to the end. It is not even able to contain him. Everywhere you go in this world, God is there. But in Christian, you have something even better. Not only do you have an omnipresent God everywhere you go, you have God inside of you, living in you, filling you, encouraging you, teaching you. And Jesus says, that's far better if I was right here next to you. So don't be envious of Paul. We have exactly what Paul has Hmm. What encouragement. We have a Savior, amen? We have a Savior that sticks closer than a brother. As he encourages Paul here, he has given his Spirit to encourage you today. Be filled with the Spirit is the command. Let's do that. Look at verse 12. What happens the next day after the Lord Jesus makes his promise to Paul? When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So here a plot is launched by 40, over 40 Jewish people who want nothing but Paul dead. They're believing the lies that he's a forsaker of the law of Moses, that he brought a Gentile into the temple. Paul does not deserve to live. That's what they've said. And they are so serious about this that they make a vow to not eat again until he's dead. Now, 
What did the Lord Jesus just say to Paul the night before? Either these guys are going to die hungry, or they're not going to fulfill their vow. Because the Lord Jesus has already promised that they will, he will be protected until he gets to Rome. Paul's a Roman citizen. And the Romans, by the providence of God, have saved Paul from their mob violence at least now three different times. So why do they come up with this own plot? Because they can't trust the Romans to kill him. Because now they found out he's a Roman citizen. They don't have any charges against Paul. So you know what? We have to take matters into our own hands. So what's the plan? Tell the Romans that you want Paul to come back. Hey, you want to re-examine his case and make sure that you understand it fully. And when they bring him down, we'll be waiting in ambush outside. And when he gets close, we'll mix in and kill him. And he will be done. He will be over. So just tell the Roman commander to bring him by for another meeting. And this vow is very serious at the one they make here. The actual Greek word is they anathematized themselves, or they brought the judgment of God. Like they wished the judgment of God upon themselves. Like, God, strike us dead if we eat before he's dead. Like that's how serious they were about this. So serious to invite divine judgment upon themselves. Or really, even further than that, to anathematize yourself as a Jew was to cut yourself off from God's promises, to cut yourself off from God's people. Wow. They're not just, maybe they don't like Paul. No, they hate him. They hate him through and through. Look at verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. This is very interesting. For the first time, we learn that Paul has a family. Of course, we know he has a family, but we learn, we hear his family's mentioned for the first time in the scriptures. And it's his nephew, the son of Paul's sister. Somehow, some way, Paul's nephew hears of the ambush. I guess when 40 different people are talking, it's hard to keep a secret, right? Leaked information, top secret information gets out. Who is his nephew? Is he a believer? We don't know. How does he hear of this news? We don't know. It was just an accident. I mean, right? Paul's nephew just happened to be at the right place at the right time. I guess Paul was lucky. Paul is lucky, right? Hmm. Pretty amazing. It's all luck. Listen to me very closely, because some of you need to hear this. There is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as luck. As a matter of fact, luck should not even be a part of our vocabulary. Let's make it a four-letter word. Well, I guess it is a four-letter word. <laughs> it's not even a part of our vocabulary. Why? Because luck implies that something has happened 
by accident, right? Or by random chance. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by random chance. If you read your Bibles, you know this. If things happen by accident or by random chance, that means, if that is true, if luck is a real thing, that means that we do not have a God who is sovereign. We have a God who is not in control over certain aspects of his creation. And we know that God is sovereign, right? We know that everything happens on purpose. I mean, oftentimes, we tell, some, we tell people going through a hard time, everything happens for a reason, right? And yes, it is true that sometimes that reason is that you're stupid. But also, <laughs> nothing happens by accident. It's for the reason that the sovereign God is telling a story and the things are laid out just as he wants. Come on, Dan. Have you ever thrown dice? You're telling me that when you throw dice and you're playing Farkle, which, by the way, if you've never heard of the greatest comeback in Farkle history, we'll talk about that later. That was me. Nothing happens. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Nothing happens by accident. Even throwing dice. Okay, Dan, now you're going too far. No, not really. This is what the scriptures say. Think about this. Every second of your life is written in his book. He has written it before time began. We're just witnessing, we're just witnessing it all play out in time. As we worship a sovereign God. In the Bible times, what did they do? They didn't have like dice like we do. They cast lots. What was a lot? Well, they were painted stones that you would put in a pot. And they used lots to determine what God wanted them to do. And when they cast the lots in a certain way, they would know what God has answered and what God wanted them to accomplish. Even the casting of painted stones is not an accident. It's not a lucky happenstance. The fact that Paul's nephew is, at the, is there and he hears of this plan... It's because the Lord has him there. It's what the Lord told Paul the night before. They're not going to kill you. You are going to Rome. And the Lord ensures that every step of the way takes place. For example, in Proverbs chapter 16, what what does the word of God say? The lot is cast into the lap. That's what they would toss to determine, like dice, what would happen. But it's every decision is from the Lord. No Jew ever cast a lot and said, maybe we'll get lucky this time. Every roll and flip of that stone was planned by a sovereign God. 
Every moment of our life, every day of our lives is also the same. Proverbs chapter 20 says this, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Yeah, we're we're powerless. We think that we are in control of our own lives. That's our biggest fall, isn't it? We think that we actually are in control, that we are own we are our own little God. But we're not. Listen to what Jeremiah says. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Yeah, we're not even in control of our next day. Yeah, we sin, we make choices. But it is God who oversees all of that. It is God who protects you from you. It is God who keeps you from evil. It is God who allows certain things into your life. For his will to be accomplished. Whether that is suffering or imprisonment or whatever God never wastes a heartache, never wastes a tear. There's nothing that happens to you that is by accident. The good, the bad, the ugly. God will use it all for his glory. This is the promise of the word of God. Just ask mighty King Nebuchadnezzar. The king of Babylon. Mighty King Nebuchadnezzar, who once had a statue 90 feet high made out of gold so that all people would worship him at the sound of the music. Remember him, full of pride, full of himself. What happens? God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He brought him to a place of humility. In that, at the end of his life, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He trusts in the God of Israel. He believes in the Lord. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. In Daniel chapter 4, he says this, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will. He doesn't do things according to our will. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? He does things according to his will. Will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way as he literally went crazy and ate grass like an ox and had his fingernails grow out like an eagle's talons. He was out of his mind, but God humbled this prideful man. And at the end of his life, what does Nebuchadnezzar remember and realize? Here I thought I was sovereign king of Babylon. But I am nothing compared to him. 
he does whatever he wants. And he's the only one who can do that. Who sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Israel and Judah? God. And then who humbled that same man? God. God is sovereign over evil people, over righteous people, over evil rulers, over all nations and tongues. None can stay his hand. You can't stop God. Maybe if a bunch of us all get together, we could show God a better plan. You can't stop God. And no one has the right to ask, what? What have you done? But God, I had a better way. Why did you let that happen in that way? Don't you know that this could have happened and that could have happened? Don't you know God knows what could have happened? He's, um, he's omniscient. There's nothing that God does not know. God doesn't learn as he goes. There's nothing he doesn't know. He doesn't learn. God doesn't improve into a better God. There's no like beta God and then God 2.0. Like some people think of God is like that. Like, oh, we had the God of the Old Testament where he was, a, he was a mean guy who judged people and sent floods and plagues. And, but here the God of the New Testament, oh, it's Jesus. He's loving and friendly and cool. Like God improved from the Old Testament to the New. He's the same God. He's holy and righteous, omniscient. Full of wrath, full of glory. He doesn't change. He doesn't improve. He knows it all. Hmm. So, Paul's nephew just happened to be at the right place at the right time to hear the plan to kill his uncle? Yes. And it wasn't an accident. It was on purpose by the hand of a God who has promised all things. Look at verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire some what more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Paul calls Oliver one of the Roman centurions, and he says, Hey, listen to this kid. He's got something to say. And he sends him over to the commander. The commander hears it and tells the child, Do not say anything about it. Of course, we're not told to his age. I think it's a young man. 
But what concern is this to the commander? Like, what does he care if Paul lives or dies? I'll tell you what the concern is. He's still on the hook for something that he's done. He's tied up Paul. He's almost tortured Paul, which is against Roman law. All he wants to do is find out what he's done wrong so he can clear his name and send Paul on his way. If anything happens to Paul, it's going to come back on his head. And he knows it. So what does he do? He's got to protect Paul. He has to. The Romans go from being the enemies of Paul to being what? His friends, sort of. Friends with interest in mind to protect them themselves. But God is even using the Romans for his glory to save Paul's life. And remember what the purpose and goal is. To get Paul to Rome to share about the risen Jesus all the way to Caesar himself. What does the tribune do? Look at verse 23. Then he called to the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. All he knows to do is he's got to get Paul out of here. He's going to die, and then it's going to come back on him that he's done something to this Roman citizen, and he can't have that. So what does he do? We're going to get Paul out in the middle of the night. Let's go. Take him over to Caesarea, where he's going to see Felix, the governor. Felix was a higher-up person in the Roman Empire than he was. I'm going to send him up the chain of command. And he was so scared that the Jews were going to kill him, he sends 200 soldiers on foot, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, 470 soldiers to protect Paul on the road by night. They leave at 9 o'clock at night. It says the third hour of the day. If Luke is referring to the Jewish time of day, it's 9 o'clock at night. They're going to walk all night to Caesarea. Hmm. I'm sure Paul never saw that coming. Rome is giving him a military escort so he wouldn't be killed by the Jews and make sure nothing happens to him. It's not Rome that's protecting him. It's God. It's the sovereign God. The same God who promised Paul, you're going to go to Rome. The same God who put his nephew at the right place. And it's the same God who is turning the heart of the Roman commanders for his glory. That's what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that the hearts of kings are in the hands of God. Proverbs 21.1 says that. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Oh, is God sovereign? You better believe it. You better believe it. That even kings and rulers and authorities 
who are wicked and want evil things. They could care less about Paul, but here is God holding their hearts in his hand, turning it the way he wants them to go. It was God who sent 470 men to protect Paul through this Roman commander. Do kings get to do what they want to do? No, because our God is sovereign over them. They only do what God allows them to do, even in their wickedness. Here the Roman commander sending Paul to Felix. God is getting the glory. Friends, we ought not fear when our leaders make foolish decisions. We need not fear when our politicians in Washington do the things they do. God is sovereign even over their stupidity and only allows things into place for the story he's telling. Think with me for a moment to another man. Just to give you an example. Let's go all the way back to Egypt. Several thousands of years before this. What happens there? God calls a man named Moses. And he tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I've got a message for you to give Pharaoh. Let my people go. You know the story. Moses goes. Pharaoh keeps saying no. No, no, no. But why does he say no? Hmm. If you're paying attention to the story, it says seven times. There's ten plagues. Seven out of the ten plagues. Every time Pharaoh said no, there's another plague. Seven out of the ten times we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Three times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Seven times God hardened his heart. Every time Pharaoh said no, it was planned by God. Why? Because every plague that was coming was a judgment on one of the gods of Egypt. And God wanted Egypt and Israel to know that he is the Lord Exodus 7, Exodus 8, Exodus 9, Exodus 14. Seven times God is holding the heart of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is sinning against the Lord. But God is ordaining even that. God is not the author of sin, but God is sovereign even over Pharaoh's sin. All planned by God. All ten plagues. An affront to the gods of Egypt. And finally on Passover night, the firstborn is struck in Egypt. Pharaoh relents, beaten down after ten plagues. And he lets the Israelites go. Fine, go, get out of here. You know the story. Israel leaves. They go to the Red Sea and they're stuck. They can't go any further. Then we're told what happens. The God who brings Pharaoh to a place to let Israel go? What are we told? Then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
And what did Pharaoh do? He says, let's go get those Israelites. We can't live here without them being our slaves. And then Pharaoh comes to the Red Sea with his armies. And who brings Pharaoh there? God. And then God parts the sea for Israel to cross on dry land. And then he throws, this is the wording, God throws the armies of Pharaoh into the sea and he crushes them with his holy wrath. The same God who hardened Pharaoh to say, no, 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 finally says, okay, let them go. Then when Israel's gone, tells Pharaoh, go get them. He goes and gets them and then he crushes Pharaoh. I mean, the wording is unmistakable. God gets what he wants. This is why Paul mentions Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9, which I've nicknamed the hammer, because it's broken my theology. If you've been to my office, Leo Breisaker actually gave me a hammer in a glass case to mark that, anyway, saying, Paul uses the example of Pharaoh over with God being sovereign. And what does he say? After he explains why God chose Jacob rather than Esau and why God's sovereign purpose of election should continue, he uses Pharaoh as an example why God gets the glory and he's sovereign. He says in verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The purpose of Pharaoh's life was to give glory to God. And how did God do that? By hardening his heart and crushing him in the sea so that all Israel would know, our God is the Lord. And then, as Israel marched to the promised land, what are all the Canaanites saying? Did you hear what the God of Israel did to Pharaoh? God gets the glory. He is sovereign over Pharaoh. He is sovereign over a nephew hearing an ambush attack. He is sovereign over the life of Jesus. How many times did they try to kill Jesus before he went to the cross? Many times. And Jesus kept saying, my time has not yet come. They were not going to kill Jesus until it was time, the time that God had planned. All the world got to hear of the glory of God over Pharaoh, the global military superpower of his day. And God saved his people from their enemies. He's sending Paul to Felix, the Roman governor, and there wasn't a thing that the Roman commander could do that wasn't under God's plan. Hmm. Look at verse 25. So he sends Paul by night to the governor, and he sends a letter. And this is what the letter said. He wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, that's the commander's name, to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. 
I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Notice how he doesn't say that he almost tortured him and bound him and imprisoned him himself. Of course, he leaves that part out. He makes himself look really great. I rescued him. He's a Roman citizen. Yeah, okay. Politicians always trying to save their own skin and careers, right? Some things never change. Look at verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked, what province are you from? And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So the governor reads the letter sent from the commander. He receives Paul and says, Roman citizen, huh? Yep. Where are you from? Cilicia. Hmm. Okay. And he puts him in Herod's praetorium, not in prison. He guards Paul in a private place to make sure that he's protected. Very interesting. You see, Felix had more power in Caesarea than Lysias had in Jerusalem. But someone from Cilicia has more power than Felix in Caesarea. The closer you get to Rome, the more power you have. And Paul was in a place that was closer than Felix. Felix, again, is saying... Okay, and the Roman citizenship of Paul becomes a factor again. Why? Because God wants Paul to go to Rome and share the gospel with Caesar and the imperial guard. Our God gets what he wants. That's how everything ends. Fast forward to the last second that will ever tick off this clock in this history on this earth. And at the end of time, God gets the glory, he wins, and everything that has happened has led to that moment in time, and we will worship him forever, for everything he's done, for everything he's allowed, for everything he's brought up, the good, the bad, the ugly. Why? Because he's had a purpose through it all. We have much to be angry about in this country. A country that's walked away from righteousness and has been accepting sin more every day. Our leaders are plotting evil against the laws of God. Lies are being spun by the media every day just to cover for them. But let me encourage you that just like the heart of Pharaoh was in the hand of God, so is every heart in Washington, D.C., God will have his way, 
Evil people will be evil. They will do what they want. And God will still be glorified by allowing them to do what they do because he's got a reason for it. What is that? I can't tell you. Only God knows. God will have the last word. No matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter what they plan to do. What they have meant for evil, God has meant for good. Do not fret over evildoers. God is sovereign. Worship him. And think like the psalmist in Psalm chapter 2. Let's close by reading that psalm. What an encouragement for the time that we live in. When we see a world turning against God in every inconceivable fashion, things we have never would have dreamed about 5, 10, 15, 30 years ago, now is just commonplace. What is Psalm 2? Say, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What does God do as evil people plot evil? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God laughs when evil people try to overthrow him. When evil people try to usurp him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The word derision means a joke. God considers them to be a joke. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Why does God laugh? Because he gets the glory. And he's appointed Jesus Christ to rule over them. He says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord is speaking to Jesus here, the Messiah, and he says, Son, the nations are your inheritance. And he promises to him the title deed to the earth. You will rule them and break them like a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When the king, when King Jesus returns in his glory, at his glorious appearing, the word that comes from his mouth will devour the enemies of God, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, God speaks to the kings of the earth, the rulers, the politicians. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What does God say to these evil kings? There's only one thing for you to do. Repent. Repent and come to grips with a holy and sovereign God. Repent and kiss the son Bow down, worship him, revere him, believe in him, or else face his holy and hot wrath. Christian, as R.C. Sproul has once said, there are no renegade molecules in this universe. 
They're all subject to God. God has ordained all things for his glory. What evil people mean for evil, he means for good. To save many people alive. Rejoice. Rejoice. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for a story in which we see a nephew that you have placed by your providence so that Paul would be protected. Evil Roman leaders are now advancing your cause. They're trying to protect their own selves. But Lord, even in their sin of selfishness, you are using them to protect your servant and to fulfill your promises. What a comfort this doctrine is of the sovereignty of God. And how do we see the Roman citizenship of Paul play out the rest of this book? As we see how you've worked in the heart of Pharaoh. God, we pray for our leaders in Washington and Tallahassee. May they repent and turn to you. May they kiss the son lest he be angry. May they trust in your name. May they rule and lead us righteously. Father, in the end, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we look back at all the pains of this life, all the frustrations of this life, we will see, we will see what you have done to accomplish your end result, your maximum glory. Oh God, may you be magnified in our eyes. May we see you as a big God over our little lives. Every second, every day, every moment, no such thing as luck. Everything happens for your purpose. God, there's 10,000 things we could praise you for that we don't even know about. Since we've woken up this morning, there's 10,000 things, I'm sure, that your sovereign rule has vetoed in our life. And God, there's other things that you've allowed into our life. No matter what they are, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing closing song. If I could help you in any way, please see me after the service. God bless you. Have a great day.